Welcome to Lives, a show exploring our experiences in the world and how we might live well. I'm Stuart Chittenden, and my guest returning to the show is the rector at St. Andrew's Episcopal Church in Omaha, Father Keith Winton, who talks with me about Christmas past and present. And it's not just people who love this song. In 2010, there was a British goat farmer who was experimenting, and his goats gave out 20% more milk when he played All I Want for Christmas is You. And then they stopped giving milk when he played the Chipmunk Christmas song. So. Why December 25th? What were the religious origins and evolution of this holiday celebration? What are some fascinating backstories to the creation of some favorite carols? Who saved Christmas and who is its queen? Father Keith Winton is rector at St. Andrew's Episcopal Church in Omaha. Before his ordination to the priesthood in 2019, Father Keith was a software developer. To learn more about his journey into ministry and how his secular and academic life as a mathematician have shaped his life of faith, listen back to the podcast of our previous conversation on lives, which aired on December 18th, 2022. Father Keith Winton, welcome back to lives. Thank you, Stuart. It is great to be back with you. So... We are airing this conversation on the morning of Christmas Eve, and so we're going to talk about Christmas. So important dates, uh, December 25th, uh, it's tomorrow. Why is that date so important, and how do we come to celebrate that date? Well, it's it's actually not 100% known. There are several, several reasons, all of which ended up uh, creating this December 25th date. Uh, clearly, no one knows exactly when Jesus was born. One of the second century theologians, he's the one I think who decided that the earth is 4,004 years old, uh, said that uh, creation happened on March 25th. That was the day of creation, uh, those many years ago, on exactly that year. And therefore, uh, Jesus must have been conceived on March 25th. Therefore, he was born on December 25th. So that's one of the uh, one of the early reasons they picked the 25th. There were also um, a Roman holiday and uh, a, a, a Roman military cult as well that celebrated uh, the uh, the birth of their uh, their sort of figure, uh, Mithras, on uh, on those days. There was the Roman festival Saturnalia, which was a time of giving gifts. So once Christianity uh, in the mid fourth century became the official religion of the Roman Empire. Uh, it, it just made sense to take this date that actually had been determined uh, about a century earlier uh, by that theologian and really make it be the date for Christmas because uh, taking the, the uh, time when people were already celebrating, celebrating the beginning of the days getting longer, celebrating light, uh, celebrating the giving of, with giving of gifts, uh, it made a lot of sense just to make that be the day that officially became Christmas. So much to that idea of the seasonality, because we're so close then, it's not exactly right, but we're so close to the winter solstice, um, but there are those periods of, as you say, the light changing, the days growing longer. Um, But there's also a slight disconnect, depending upon which calendar we're talking about, if I understand correctly, the Julian or the Gregorian? Um, Right. In the the Middle Ages, the... uh, 
the there was no leap year until then, and so the the seasons had were starting to get way out of whack, and so they changed the calendar. Uh, the Eastern Orthodox Church did not change calendars; they did not adopt the Gregorian calendar. They stayed on the Julian calendar, and so their um, their day of Christmas is uh, is January seventh, which is also the day of Epiphany, the day that uh, in all churches we celebrate the wise men coming to Bethlehem. And then, of course, you have the the whole thing about the Southern Hemisphere where I'm told very devout Anglicans who are really into Christmas, as you know, uh, uh, will uh, will put on light fires and put on winter coats and sing Christmas carols, even though it's the middle of summer there. We may have a chance to talk about some of our traditions, but I have to say I always relish getting Christmas cards from my family from around the world, especially from uh, the southern part of the globe, because often uh, Santa is wearing uh, surfing shorts and uh, <laughs> yeah. cooking at the barbecue, this sort of thing. So I, I, I kind of relish that juxtaposition. Um, but we'll come to Santa later. Um, let's continue with the development of Christmas as the sort of celebration that we know it today. So you mentioned the 4th century BC, uh, uh, sorry, not BC, uh, um, AD. I think it was Constantine, the Roman emperor at that time. So things started to become a little more solidified in terms of this being a, a Christian celebration. They did. And, and uh, one of the key things that, well, initially, let me, let me backtrack. Initially, Christmas was not anything that was really celebrated or, or lifted up in any significant way by the early Christians. The focus was all on the resurrection. So um, early Christians, even, even if you look at Scripture, it's only the Gospel of Matthew and Luke that have anything about Christmas. The other two Gospels really don't have anything about Jesus' birth, and uh, there's no discussion of his birth in any of the rest of the New Testament. So the early church strictly celebrated Easter and the resurrection uh, and not Christmas at all. So uh, a, 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 as I said, when, when it became part of the Roman Empire then, uh, it, it sort of came into focus. In addition, uh, just after a bit after that, there was a heresy uh, most all heresies are some form of Gnosticism or another, and that's, uh, that's a heresy that says uh, light is good, dark is bad, uh, spirit is good, created things are bad. Um, uh, there's, it comes in all kinds of flavors, but uh, this particular flavor, if you care, the name was called Priscillianism. They began to focus a little more on Christmas because it was a way to really push the idea that God became incarnate. God came to earth as a human. And, uh, and if you're trying to combat something that says God would never become a human because created stuff, especially people, are dirty and icky and, uh, and only the spirit is good, Christmas gives you the best way to do that. So what then was happening in those centuries after that to begin to establish it a little more as the celebration that we're beginning well, to it, understand. Well, it, it actually had its ups and downs throughout the centuries. So Charlemagne uh, be, was crowned Holy Roman Emperor on Christmas Day. So that, uh, that created a whole new, uh, whole new uh, focus on celebrating during Christmas time. Um, and it, it, throughout then, uh, the following centuries, it had ups and downs. When the Puritans took control in England, uh, they outlawed Christmas. It was illegal to celebrate Christmas. And uh, after, the th after the Restoration, uh, Christmas was allowed again. But the, uh, the sort of the genteel people looked down on it just a little because it was a time of uh, celebration among the rabble. And there was too much drinking and too much, uh, you know, too much uh, just uh, rabble-rousing. So it still was uh, was not uh, wasn't was not really the kind of celebration that we think of today, where everyone participates in uh, with lots of joy, uh, and and um, it ended up uh, being uh, Charles Dickens 
there was a movie that came out a few years ago, The Man Who Invented Christmas, and and really, if uh, there's a there's great truth. Um, it's it's a fictionalized story, but as as most of those go, everything behind it had had reality. Um, and uh, he really did reinvent Christmas. This was the height of the the Industrial Revolution in England and, and everywhere. And so there were, you know, children used as chimney sweeps because they could fit in the chimneys and children working in the mines and, uh, and, and poor people and poor houses. And it was just a lot of class uh, abuse of, of the, the people they, they viewed to be lower classes. And uh, Dickens was one of the people who was very outspoken about trying to address this situation. Um, he and, and others uh, were, had written some pamphlets uh, for, uh, for Parliament to try and uh, get people to change uh, change their their ways and to uh, to put in some uh, some rules and benefits and stop treating people so poorly. Um, and uh, he gave a speech in October of 1863, I think. In this speech, he was getting ready to release sort of a, a pamphlet that would be a, a just. He said it would turn people on their heads and really put people to shame. And, and then it came to him um, that maybe the better way to get people was to use a little honey. And, and to write a novel instead. And in this October speech, he developed uh, what he called the Christmas philosophy, uh, that Christmas should be a time of treating each other as, uh, as fellow human beings on the journey together, rather than uh, looking at the, at the, the, the working class people as uh, people who were, who were not even really people. So he developed this Christmas Carol philosophy and then spent the next few months writing the Christmas Carol. Yeah. Um, I can resist. Uh, people won't be able to see this, but I did bring into the studio as we're talking uh, my copy of uh, Dickens's A Christmas Carol. And one of the traditions I have is I try every year to consume some form of that story in whatever cultural format it takes, whether it's film, uh, um, a performance, or you know some kind of literary work. But I did bring the book with me, and I, for me, it has one of the best opening lines in all of literature. It's along the lines of. Um, Marley was dead to begin with. You must know that. It's yeah. it's such a wonderful opening line. But you were starting to talk about the the actual writing of this work, and I I feel like there's a story to that too because you've spoken a little bit about the Christmas philosophy and and this really pro social social justice impetus that Dickens was feeling, who himself had experienced poverty and working as a child. But there seemed to be something almost of a frenzy and also a desperation to him creating what we now know as a sort of a great celebrated work. Yes, his sister reports, as is depicted in this fictionalized movie, that he would wander the streets for 15 hours all night long uh, trying to create this story. He was, uh, he was out of money and he needed a way to pay the bill. I think he published it himself because he couldn't pay a publisher. Um, and so he, he would wander the streets and she's, she, uh, she reports that he would, he would be laughing and crying and, uh, and, uh, and, and just jumping with joy as he created this story in his head. And it, it ended up being, as you said, the, the, the classic. I, you know, if folks who are listening, if you haven't read it in recent years, it's a very short book. You can read it in, what, Stuart? An hour almost, I think. Mm -hmm. yep. And it is so beautiful and so well written. It's just a delight. So I encourage everybody to go grab a copy. You can even find it free online uh, and, uh, and, and take a read this season. I, I do feel like, of course, it's a little dangerous to succumb to the hyperbole that Dickens saved Christmas, but, but there definitely is uh, a much bigger picture to that, uh, of course. But there was that marking, that transition from what you described as um, uh, 
in the mid 1600s, the Protestant Reformation, the Puritans, this um, genteel people didn't celebrate Christmas because there was too much rabble rousing associated with it. Um, but that shifted over the next couple of hundred years, and Dickens does seem responsible to putting into the public imagination a philosophy of goodness, as it were, about this time of year. So it really feels like we're marking that transition from a less traditional or you know, contemporary form of Christmas into one that we maybe now recognize. So who else was helping shape at that time this conception of what we think of as Christmas now? Well, unexpectedly, right at that same time, Washington Irving, uh, American mostly, if you know him, you know him as uh, the Legend of Sleepy Hollow guy, uh, the Halloween guy. Washington Irving uh, developed a, 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 an organization called the St. Nicholas Society in New York, and he wanted to bring that spirit uh, and they had parades, they had gift giving, they had parties, and he was the leader of the St. Nicholas Society, which still exists to this day uh, in New York. And he wrote a book called Old Christmas that introduced uh, the character of St. Nicholas uh, and St. Nicholas as a giver of gifts uh, and began to paint the picture of St. Nicholas uh, that, that, um, that, that we, we, we have in our heads a little bit today. Uh, St. Nicholas as, uh, you know, he was a bishop, the real, the real St. Nicholas. Uh, it lived in the third century. He was a bishop of Myra what's in what's now Turkey. Um, and he was, uh, legendarily at least, uh, known for giving, giving gifts to people. Uh, he's, uh, he's also legendarily known uh, at the Council of Nicaea, where one of the key heresies of the church was ironed out, um, at, uh, at, at uh, slapping the person on the other side, the wrong side of the heresy, in the face and getting kicked out of the council. So he may not, he may not be the jolly old elf that we think of him as today. Uh, but but Washington Irving introduced began to introduce this this Saint Nicholas Christmas time. One of the other key things he did uh, there was a distrust of Roman Catholics in the United States, especially at that time. And so Washington uh, Irving moved Saint Nicholas visit Santa Claus visit from Christmas Day because uh, the Roman Catholic uh, Church uh, and the Anglicans were worshiping on Christmas Day, and that that was. Is, uh, the, the, the Puritans, the Protestants, were um, sort of suspicious of that. So we moved the visit to Christmas Eve to separate out the, maybe it's the first beginnings of separating out the religious aspects of Christmas from the secular aspects of Christmas. Some people have a tradition in their families of distributing and sharing gifts on Christmas Eve and, and others on Christmas Day, and, and yet other people on Boxing Day. They're a sort of Victorian tradition of giving gifts on Boxing Day. But I'm just curious, given how you described um, that vision of St. Nicholas as this kind of secret gift giver, um, and then, uh, what was his name, sorry? Washington? Washington um, Irving. Washington thank you. How he transitioned, uh, you know, St. Nick into this Christmas Eve uh, figure. Are there any of these narratives or stories that have shaped when and how we think about giving gifts? I think... Perhaps the uh, the most Im- the most important one, from the sense of influence, is probably uh, "Twas the Night Before Christmas" by Clement Moore. Um, really, he uh, at the time there were there were different descriptions. Saint Nicholas, you know, a bishop with very large bishop's robes and a pointy hat, uh, or an elf, maybe from the German countries. Maybe there's sort of Saint Nicholas, uh, Kris Kringle is an elf, kind of a little wizened kind of character. Uh, but in in uh, in Twas the Night Before Christmas, Clement Moore really painted the picture that began to, to, uh, to mature into the Santa Claus that we know today uh, and, uh, and had a great influence. It might be the most well-known verses of American poetry ever, ever written, really, if you think about it. What really 
shaped the Santa Claus that we know today was uh, Coca-Cola. In 1931, uh, Coca-Cola uh, created an ad campaign with Santa Claus. They took what uh, what Clement Moore had described. They took a little bit from Washington Irving, uh, and they created the fat, jolly Santa. Not a bishop, not an elf, the fat, jolly, human-sized Santa with uh, with a big red nose. And, and everyone, everyone listening, I'm sure, has one year or another in their mind of that vision of the Coca-Cola Santa, because every year from 1931, there has been a Coca-Cola Santa campaign. So more than anybody else, we can thank or, or blame, perhaps, Coca-Cola for this, this vision we have now universally of what, what what Santa looks like. It's a long way from a fourth century bishop slapping a heretic in the face to, as you describe him, the you know soda drinking uh, jolly fella in red robes. Yeah. Um, I, although I did see something uh, f- funny on. Uh, on Facebook the other day, someone had posted that it draws the two together. It had a picture of uh, the old St. Nicholas, the ancient St. Nicholas, slapping the heretic Arius. Uh, and the caption said, deck the halls? How about deck the heretics? So that sort of ties them together. So we spoke a little bit about Dickens and and trying to bring forth, a, you know, this, this spirit that was really pro-social and celebratory of the human condition and exhorting people to, to love one another. And now, uh, you know, we've, we've traversed from, from there to today where, you know, massive amounts of, of money is spent on, on celebrating and, and the really generous act of giving to others. But it is big business, literally big business. How, from your point of view, is that shaping the sense of what Christmas is? Well, one of the positive things I think that has come over the last few years in the uh, ubiquity of internet shopping is uh, on Black Friday, first of all, just in case people don't know, you know, Black Friday is called Black Friday because traditionally that was the first day of the year the businesses were able to turn a profit. So they were in the black all the rest of the year, their books had been in the red. They've been losing money, and that's finally when you know they were able to start paying for all of their inventory and uh, and all of their all their bills. So that's why it's called Black Friday from an accounting perspective. Um, and uh, you, know, I remember, you know, not that many years ago that people were trampled to death because of uh, stampedes at Black Friday sales, and uh, and that no longer happens anymore. And I think in, you know, in part because we have internet shopping and the sales have been uh, stretched out over many many days rather than one one day at when the clock strikes midnight. Uh, but I, I do think uh, we we have become, or we're trying to become, more and more aware of um, of our responsibility to each other and the bonds, the common humanity um, that impacts all of us, and the suffering of anyone that affects all of us in the end. So um, that uh, that's my that's my hopeful view of the road we're we're heading towards on Christmas. You were ordained relatively late in in your sort of career trajectory, in your life. I'm, I'm wondering if your view on Christmas has sort of shifted just in that transition. Mostly, I, I have to think just for a second about that, but I, mostly what has happened for me is because, I, because in the church world, I am so very, very busy during, uh, during the, the, the four weeks of Advent that lead up to Christmas um, and, and then Christmas, um, I really cherish... Uh, finding those moments 
to, to relax, finding those moments to be with family and friends, finding those moments uh, to do small celebrations all along the way. Um, and um, these four weeks that we're in right now as we're recording this, Advent, you know, the themes of Advent are light and peace and hope and joy and love. And so really, uh, really digging deeper into those those themes, not as emotions, but as choices that we make. Uh, the choice to make peace in the world. The choice, hope Hope is not optimism. It's uh, something much different. It's not an emotion. Um, the same thing with joy. You can't be happy and sad at the same time, but you can be you can be sad and still be joyful. You can be grieving and still be joyful because uh, because joy is being thankful for what you have rather than focusing on what you don't have. And there's so many aspects of life that that you can wrap around with that concept. So I think one of the things that has changed for me is a, is a greater focus on on the preciousness of of those themes. So Advent, also like Christmas Day and how you've described this evolving history of what Christmas is, Advent itself is a season, a set of practices, set of values, and and um, you know aspects that we want to manifest in the world. It has its own history and evolution too, and I, I wonder if you wouldn't mind sharing just a little bit of, of that history and story too. Sure, I think that uh, that's a really important question because there are some Christian traditions that don't really uh, focus on Advent or, or have a celebration of Advent. So it is one of the uh, the traditional seasons in the liturgical calendar of, of all the liturgical churches, Orthodox, Roman Catholic, Anglican, um, uh, Methodist, Presbyterians typically, um, and others. Uh, Advent came about, obviously Christmas had to be established first because Advent is preparation for Christmas. And uh, Advent came about as, as Christmas in those early centuries became, uh, became much more defined as a time for preparation. Just like Lent is a time of preparation and perhaps penitence and, uh, and uh, you know, additional prayer for Easter, Advent became sort of like a little Lent, a, a time of, of uh, being prepared for the celebration of Christmas. So Advent is the four weeks before Christmas. And Christmas, of course, is not just one day. It's the 12 days of Christmas, like in the song. The, the next church season after Christmas is Epiphany, which is 12 days after Christmas Day. And that celebrates uh, uh, the coming of the Magi, to, to the, the wise men, to, to Bethlehem. Could you share a little bit more then about those traditions associated with, um, with Advent? So, for example, I know that there are... Um, some traditions around color schemes, around the use of different candles, uh, th those kind of symbols of what this season represents. Yeah, so uh, each each season, uh, each in the church uh, calendar year has a different liturgical color. So the color for Easter um, and Christmas is white. The color for Advent uh, and Lent is purple or in, in, in recent years, uh, decades, uh, many churches have started using blue for Advent. Uh, the... Um, uh, a few other things typically change in the in the worship of the church during Advent. Uh, some of the some of the more joyful things, not all of them, but some of the more joyful um, exclamations are removed or reduced. Uh, in to, really uh, to help it be a more thoughtful penitential time, and also in preparation for the the burst of joy that happens at the Christmas services. Uh, there are uh, some people may do this in their homes. You see them in you know, in decorations all over. There are candles, uh, Advent candles, and each one, as I said before, the themes of peace, joy, hope, and love. Uh, each Sunday, one 
additional candle in that list is lit, and there are prayers, songs, celebrations, you know, different traditions depending on your your particular church context, but uh, a way to focus for that week on on that particular of those four themes. Listeners are just hearing us chat, but they won't know that you are wearing a, a purple sweater. I don't know, is that intentional? Because sure, yeah. <laughs> Um, well, the, so there are other symbols too, right? Um, and, and so at home I have, and, and we'll be opening, uh, given that this, you know, Christmas Eve, uh, I will be opening the last little doorway on an Advent calendar. Um, but some of these trappings of Advent are, are also relatively modern. Is there some backstory or history behind the use of uh, Advent wreaths, Advent calendars, that that sort of thing? Well, many um this will not not surprise uh, those uh, of your listeners who are who are parents or grandparents. Many of those traditions uh, came about to help to help children who were so excited manage the days and the excitement leading up to that time. So the Advent wreath was initially created by a pastor in Germany. Um, who had, in addition to the four large candles, had uh, little candles all around. And so each day during the week even, a different little candle would be lit. And so the children would be able to, uh, to sort of know and, and easily see and count how many days they had left until, until Christmas came. Much like the Advent calendar, you know, a similar, a similar idea with those Advent calendars, which you know, initially had Bible verses and now frequently would have chocolates. Or even I even saw one, uh, I saw one for, with whiskeys from Scotland in it. Uh, and uh, the other day I saw one for your cat at the pet store with little cat treats. So, but the, the, you know, the whole point is to build that excitement and anticipation and give you a way to hold in that, that excitement uh, until the very day. Listeners also won't know that I decided to bring into the studio just a, a tiny little Christmas tree just to uh, decorate this little table while we're chatting too. Uh, Christmas trees, especially our decoration of them, also has a relatively modern... Uh, history to them. I think it was fairly common for there to be uh, evergreen boughs uh, decorating churches and and other homes. But the idea of trees as such and decorating them is relatively modern. Uh, Could you share a little bit more about that backstory? Sure. As you said, um, especially in the Northern Hemisphere, of course, it's not uh, uncommon throughout the centuries to bring in greenery and boughs uh, in in this wintertime season just because it's so drab. Um, so that's even before Christmas trees were invented, uh, people would decorate their homes with, uh, with, with fir boughs. Uh, much of, of the Christmas tree tradition comes from Germany, and it really came about as, a, as a, something that the whole public would do when Prince Albert married Queen Victoria. They moved to Windsor Castle, and he brought this tradition of a, a decorated Christmas tree with him from Germany. At that time, the, uh, the aristocracy and, and, uh, and even the middle class in England were really, really excited about, uh, about the king and queen, or the queen and the royal consort, I should say. Uh, and sort of taking on anything that they did into their own lives. And so this tradition in, uh, got started in England of, of decorating a Christmas tree uh, f- sort of full on. And there was a famous, uh, a famous woodcut uh, done in the 1850s um, of Windsor Castle with Queen Victoria and the children and Prince Albert uh, around this Christmas tree. And um, a year or two after it was, uh, it became very popular in England. They they started distributing it in the United States. I think it was Harper's Magazine, perhaps. And they Americanized it a little bit. They took off the tiara, so it wasn't the queen, and they got rid of some of the, the large handlebar mustache beard kind of thing that Prince Albert had. Um, and this woodcut, if you if in, if in your minds, I know you have seen it a thousand times. Sort of a Victorian couple. 
uh, and children around uh, around a, a Christmas tree with decorations on the branches. Uh, this, over the course of 20 years, took over the American imagination. And uh, Christmas trees appeared everywhere, not just in, in the homes of people with German heritage. There were one or two other things that you shared with me that I found quite surprising. One of those relates to Christmas hymns, Christmas carols. I had no idea how old, for example, Good King Wenceslas was as a as a Christmas hymn. What is some of the, as it were, the origin of some of these, um, you know, the the sung celebratory aspects of the Christmas season? Well, I am a singer myself, and so f- one of the most thrilling aspects of Christmas to me is is the singing, because some of the most ancient things that we sing. Um, we do at Christmas time, uh, and uh, you know, in, in in our church world, we talk about uh, the uh, the community of saints across all times and places. And for me, the singing of these songs is is a demonstrable um, reality of that. So one of uh, there's a, a chant that was uh, from 400 A.D. of the Father's Love Begotten that's very beautiful and haunting, like all chant is, but it's one of our Christmas traditions. And so for you know for 1,500 years or more. As people gather at Christmas, these words have been sung together, and they've been lifted up in uh, lifted up in in beautiful music. Um, and so, I really do have a, almost a, a tangible sense for me of uh, of what it means to have a community of saints across all times and places. And you mentioned Good King Wenceslas. That's from uh, that's from the 13th century. The uh, O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. That's from the 8th century. And the, each verse of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel refers uh, back to the Old Testament to the prophet Isaiah uh, for a, a, one of the names given to the coming Messiah. So that's why sometimes if, if you don't know that, it doesn't make sense. Key of David, what, you know, what, what does that mean? Uh, but, uh, but each of those verses then was, uh, was chanted by the monks uh, in the days preceding up to Christmas. So there's this history then of chanting, recitation, uh, sort of musically, in these uh, sort of lyrical incantations, how did they, some of these evolve into some of the, the hymns and the carols that we know well today? Well, most of the uh, sort of the modern, and by modern I mean in the last 150 years or so, uh, most all of those uh, Christmas carols uh, that you hear endlessly on the radio uh, from before Thanksgiving these days, even on, most of those have some very poignant or in, or at least interesting uh, backstory. So, uh, for example, I heard uh, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Uh, if you if you see all the verses, sometimes all the verses are not sung, but it starts out. Uh, I heard the bells on Christmas Day. Their old familiar carols play, uh, and loud and sweet the words words repeat of peace on earth, goodwill towards men. And then the subsequent verses, uh, you know, begin to talk about cannons firing in the south, and from each black accursed mouth, talks about war. And then finally, the the you know the author has given up hope. There is no peace on earth. Uh, uh, and and then the the last verse sort of comes in again with that Advent theme of hope. Uh, yes, uh, uh, in the end, the wrong will fail, the right prevail. Well, that uh, those words were written by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, and if you know him these days, you know him as the author of Paul Revere's Ride, um, as uh, a, a few other things that, uh, that that made him really famous at the time. He was he was um, 
throughout the world he was famous and probably the best known American uh, American poet. When, on his 70th birthday, he was so acclaimed that there were parades and celebrations everywhere throughout the country for him. He had uh, lost his first wife in childbirth uh, as for their, with their first child. And his second wife, um, he was taking a nap. His second wife was, had been cutting the hair of some of their young children and was sealing it in an envelope, as one even does today sometimes for your child's first haircut. And the candle caught her dress on fire. Uh, and Longfellow awoke to hear her screams and tried to put it out with a rug and then tried to put out the flames with, with himself and did not succeed. And uh, her burns were so severe that she died the next day. And his, uh, his burns were so severe he couldn't go to her funeral. Um, and just uh, just two years later, um, his oldest son, um, Longfellow was a, uh, a very adamant abolitionist. His oldest son uh, snuck away and joined the Union Army. And straight away, he was very seriously wounded and uh, nearly died with a bullet through the shoulder and uh, sort of nicked his spine. And uh, Longfellow was despondent. At his second wife's death, he was afraid that he would need need to go to a, a, an asylum because he was so grief-stricken and he couldn't get over it. And this nearly sent him over the edge. And he, he was in Boston in Cambridge, uh, and he was at his desk on Christmas Day and uh, despondent. And he heard the church bells ringing, and uh, that's when the vision for this poem uh, came to him. It, it feels both shocking and also fitting that you would share that particular story, given that I think all of us can recognize not necessarily that level of trauma, but but sometimes it can feel as if there is so much pressure to be joyful and celebratory in this particular season, albeit that life hasn't stopped for many of us. There, there are many difficulties and challenges that we're still facing. But you made the comment earlier about Advent and this lesson around hope, and that hope isn't—it's not a hallmark card aspiration. It is something that that really is to be not only worked at, but is is a real value that we can uh, attain, aspire to, and attain. So it it feels really fitting that this particular carol would be one that you would you know hold out as a as a really fitting one for this moment in time. Well, and uh, and also there is there is so much uh, unpeace throughout our world, you know, especially in the Middle East right now, that uh, I'm sure it's present to all, to all of us and, and present to those who have families there even more than, than I know. So, yes, it's, uh, you know, the, the eternal hope for peace um, is something we all, uh, we, all, we all pray in one way or another that, that we can achieve. You also mentioned Oh Holy Night as an interesting yeah, uh, oh, Holy Night is, uh, is fascinating. It was written in, uh, in the, about the time of Dickens, so the mid-19th the mid century, uh, in France. And it, wasn't, it, was not it was not a Christmas song necessarily. Um, it was a revolutionary song. Uh, this was just before the French Revolution. And uh, it, it, it was, you know, it's such a lovely song. It instantly took the public's imagination and became very popular. This song was actually not a uh, Christmas song. Truly, it was composed by an atheist, and the and the lyrics were written by a Jewish person. And uh, it didn't take the church uh, the church in France long to figure that out. And they banned it completely. Not only did they ban it, but they trashed it. They said that it was uh, it was it uh, it was uh, poor taste. The music was just in poor taste and not acceptable. So a couple years later, an American uh, was visiting France and heard it and uh, translated it into um, in into English and. Uh, 
added a little more Christian and, Christ, and Christmas uh, uh, language into it. And as in France, it became an instant hit here. Again, this was just before mid-1900s, mid-19th century, just before the, the Civil War. It became an anthem of the anti-slavery movement. So it, from, in, in both of its initial two incarnations, it was an extremely political anthem. And, uh, and those origins are sort of lost to us because it's become just a, just a beautiful Christmas, uh, you know, Christmas ditty almost. But, uh, but it has very powerful origins. Mm. What are some other carols then that, that, uh, that are interesting? I, I think you shared with me uh, that a little town of Bethlehem has its own I – mean, it feels very much like a, a children's carol because that, that's often when I think we're first exposed to it. Um, but you know, there's a pretty robust backstory to the creation of that as a as a hymn. Yeah, the um, the author Philip Brooks was uh, on a, a journey through the Holy Land, and he was traveling from Jerusalem to Bethlehem on Christmas Eve, and uh, was traveling by and uh, you know ostensibly saw the field where the shepherds were when they uh, when they saw the star when the angels came. When he arrived in Bethlehem. He worshipped at Constantine's Basilica, which has been a worship place since 326 A.D. And he was very moved by that. And also, um, the service lasted from 10 p.m. to 3 a.m., so he may have been a, a, little, uh, a, a little lacking in sleep as well. Uh, and uh, it, this, this experience provided the, 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 the image and the imagination for this hymn. Which, and he came back and, and wrote the hymn uh, very quickly, and his church organist uh, uh, wrote the music for it that the day before they the, of the that they sang it, um, and the, the organist said that it was as if an angel was whispering the music into his ear, and it just it just came to him all all complete. So it, this hymn, if you if you uh, look up the words, uh, you know, a little town of Bethlehem, how still we see thee lie. This was the vision he had as he was on that journey from Jerusalem to Bethlehem. What I really like about some of these examples you've given. Uh, both uh, musical ones, but also some of the stories, for example, like Charles Dickens and and others, was how, in some ways, the inspiration for these that we've we've come to know so well, they're so familiar. But it's almost as if there was a burst, a frenzy uh, of creativity that came upon them. You know, you've talked about Dickens, you know, walking fifteen, twenty miles a night and laughing and crying and creating this work that we know so well now, but doing so just in a matter of weeks. But then you've talked about some of these composers and, and poets uh, conceiving these these hymns, but doing so in this sort of frenzy around the exact moment. And it feels like that that is very much in in the spirit of this season. You've talked about the movement through Advent, but holding back on some of the joy because the joy itself is what happens. It sort of explodes, I think was your expression, on Christmas Day. And maybe I'm reaching too far, but it feels like there's something to that. I I think what you're describing is what we think of as inspiration. You have a job to do. Uh, We've been talking a little bit about the history. We've been talking about some of the inspiration, obviously the, the, the spiritual celebration. But you also have a job to do at this time of year. So what does your day look like and, and what happens for you on Christmas Day? As you can imagine, um, you've mentioned before, for some people, the holidays are a time of uh, sadness and grief as well as a time of happiness and joy. And so part of, uh, part of what I do is, is meet with people who, who, have, who need to be unburdened um, or, or at least who need to have their hope renewed. 
Um, and that's, again, sort of going back to those themes of, uh, of Advent, peace, hope, joy, and love. Um, so part of what I do is, um, is sort of counsel people and just walk beside them um, as they're on this journey. Uh, there are several people right now who in, in my church who have recently lost spouses. Um, and uh, so walking with them on this journey, it, uh, just to let them know that, uh, that uh, they have many companions uh, and the people are there beside them. Uh, that's a key part of, of what I'm doing this time of year. And part of it is just logistics, uh, getting ready for the children's Christmas pageant, getting ready for we have, for the various concerts we have. Last weekend, we had the Omaha Pipes and Drums with a bagpipe concert on St. Andrew's Day, which is defined as the beginning of Advent. Uh, the, the Advent is the Sunday closest to St. Andrew's Day. So we had a, a lovely bagpipe concert. Tonight, as we're recording this, we have the River City Ringers doing a handbell concert. Um, we have... Uh, uh, several other activities at Christmas time. We we actually at uh, and many churches do this. We have what we call a blue mass, which is a a mass uh, that is not a a big loud and joyful mass, but very quiet and reflective. People can light candles. People can move around if they need to. Um, uh, again, the purpose of it is to to, uh, to provide emotional support and physical support uh, for people who um, who are seeking and needing that. So there's there's a lot of uh, uh, a lot of emotional things going on and a lot of logistical things going on and uh, and then uh, trying to uh, trying to balance all of that with all the various parties to go to as well so Christmas Day then uh, for you again more ministering uh, work to do what are the moments that you have for your own personal obviously this work is meaningful for you I, I understand that um, but what are the moments for you that have um, a degree of personal fulfillment and celebration well, I've already talked about the music. As, as I said, I'm, I, I'm a singer. So I, one of the things that is most meaningful to me, uh, I'm an old softy, so I, uh, a couple of, couple of these songs that we sing, I, I, I can't sing them without tearing up. But I have uh, a, there's a chamber group that I sing in, the Omaha Chamber Singers. And we have a concert uh, next Sunday, as we record this next Sunday, um, out at Boys Town. Um, and it's it's a you know a, a traditional concert of, of sort of readings and and carols and and choir numbers. Um, uh, so so being able to participate in that millennia long tradition of music is something that uh, is one of the ways I recharge my soul as well. And um, and to be honest, uh, again focusing on Advent versus Christmas uh, is something that I that really works for me that I really need to do because uh, the last the last worship service uh, for me is 10 a.m. Christmas Day, 10 a.m. on the 25th. And from from then on, the, the, the 12 days of Christmas are, uh, are, are sort of lightweight from a worship service perspective. Um, and so that's those 12 days of Christmas really are my time to, to celebrate Christmas with family and friends and uh, catch up on sleep and do all of those things. Uh, are there any, as you just look back on your upbringing, any family traditions that you not only treasure, any that you also perpetuate? For the longest time, until until they were uh, way into their teens, Santa Claus always wrote a letter uh, thanking for the milk and cookies to, to, to our children, and my job was to write that letter. And a key part of the letter was just to, to um, sort of um, spur them on, encourage them for all of the great things they had done and uh, the things that they would be doing in, in the coming year. So that's that's one of the things that uh, that I always that I always cherish. And the, eventually, the children laughed about. But uh, we uh, we have a key family tradition. Maybe it's the only family tradition that no one can miss, and that is to watch a Christmas Carol together. 
And not just any version. It has to be the Muppets Christmas Carol because that's the very best version there is. Michael Caine is Scrooge. And you, I, I challenge anyone to watch that uh, without coming to tears uh, with a couple of the scenes that, that, that he does. It's so brilliant and so moving and so well done. Um, and we have all the music memorized. We sing along. Uh, that's one of our key can't-miss family traditions. I also love the tradition of going out with uh, family and selecting the right Christmas tree. I don't know why it's the tree that calls you, but it's the one that does. And then sharing the taking that home and decorating or as a child pretending to share the decorations. But my mother always telling me and my sister to leave it alone. Do you have a sort of a, a tradition around decorating, decorating style, that sort of thing? Uh, we have a very eclectic and perhaps some people might say hodgepodge decorating style in that uh, my, my wife is very keen on on decorating the tree. So she will tell us where to put things, but not because it has to be very orderly, but just because she wants to put as many things on it as possible. And so we have we have all manner of cherished homemade ornaments from the kids at every age. Uh, we have ornaments that commemorate important events in our lives, uh, ornaments of the various dog pets that we've had, you know. So, uh, so yes, decorating the tree uh, a, a, as a family, according to my wife's instructions, is one of our key, one of our key practices. You made reference to the Queen of Christmas to me off air. Please tell us more about this. Well, everyone knows, of course, Mariah Carey is the Queen of Christmas. Uh, and just like all the traditional carols, the, there's uh, an interesting uh, backstory to, uh, to this song. Uh, it annually tops the best-selling holiday songs, and, it, and is second only to White Christmas. Um, it's the uh, 11th highest-selling single of all time, period. Uh, yes, remarkable, yeah. And uh, if you listen to it, one of the key reasons for that, I think, uh, again, being a musician, the average pop song has four chords. Uh, this song by Mariah Carey has 13 different chords in it. It's a very complex song, really. And uh, she, she, Mariah Carey was inspired always by, uh, by traditional jazz music, by, by, um, also by gospel music. And you can hear that, especially in the opening. You, it's, there's like, she, she wails on it in a beautiful gospel style. And then it, then it sort of goes into a 1960s Phil Spector rock and roll kind of thing. And all of those are genres of music that, sh, that uh, the Carey loves. And so uh, it, you can really, I think she put a lot of herself into this. And, and that really shows uh, when, when you listen to it. Uh, one of the things it has, I mentioned 13 different chords. There's, you know, there's some, you can Google this and search on YouTube that you'll find many, many commentaries about this. There's a thing they call the Christmas chord. Uh, some people say it's, uh, it's 100% uh, true and some people sort of poo-poo that. Uh, but there is a particular chord that shows up in, uh, in, in, in White Christmas. Uh, it shows up in, in, in uh, All I Want for Christmas is You. It shows up um, all over the place, a very special chord that is, um, well, what one, uh, one commentator described it as sincere, reassuring, and cozy. Um, uh, another one calls it the, uh, the, the thing that brings in del that delicious sprinkle of salt and makes your sweet caramel all the sweeter. And so the fact that she uses this so-called Christmas chord in there uh, makes it instantly touch our hearts because it, it brings back nostalgia for all those other Christmas songs like White Christmas and all the movies that use those songs. And so there's actually a lifetime or more of, of, um, of 
previous memories that instantly that that chord kind of calls to calls to mind even if it's only in your subconscious it it really draws you in and it's not just people who love this song uh, in two, in 2010 there was a british goat farmer who uh, who was experimenting and his goats gave out 20 percent more milk when he played all i want for christmas is you um, and then they stopped giving milk when he played the chipmunk christmas song so so it's it, it, it the bottom line is it's a surprisingly sophisticated piece of, of pop music uh, that has more in common with the great American songbook, um, Irving Berlin and Jerome Kern, than it does with anything else. What about today? What about this season? What about Christmas? What about anything that's moving you right now? Is there some message that you just want to share with people at this, at this time? Well, we open with Charles Dickens, so let's close with Charles Dickens. You know, at, at the end, um, Scrooge is uh, begging the, the ghost of Christmas future, and he says, I, I will live in the past, the present, and the future. I, I will let all of these spirits live within me. And I think that is one of the gifts that Christmas gives us. The past obviously has all of our cherished memories and all of our sorrows and griefs as well. And there we are, we are who we are today, woven into the tapestry of the threads of our past. And uh, to, to ignore good threads or bad threads, to ignore any of them um, is, is to risk diminishing or even, uh, even squandering you know, who we are today. Uh, and... and uh, those who do not remember the past are forever condemned to repeat it as well. So the, living in the past, I think that's what that means, is to take all of that in and reflect on it. Uh, the present, uh, I mean, that's now is actually when and the only time we can do things. It's the only time we can make a change. It's the only time we can make the world a better place. Uh, I mentioned the prophet Isaiah earlier. My, uh, he's my favorite real prophet, but my favorite cartoon prophet is Master Shifu. And as he says to Poe in Kung Fu Panda, Yesterday is history, tomorrow is a mystery, but today is a gift. That's why they call it the present. So the present is when we take what we learn from the past. And we also then in the present is the time when we can take our hopes and dreams for the future. We always have to be living in the future because that's where we are pointing ourselves. That is the better world we want, we want to make. That is the place where there is peace on earth, goodwill towards all people. So... By following Scrooge's example and living in the past, the present, and the future, we can be the most truly human that we can. My guest today has been Father Keith Winton, the rector at St. Andrew's Episcopal Church in Omaha. Thank you so much for sharing this journey through Christmas uh, a journey through some of the the ways that we celebrate this time of year um, and also leaving us with something to hold on to and reflect on uh, at this time. So thank you very much for being here today and Merry Christmas to you. Thank you, Stuart. Merry Christmas to you and to all the listeners. It is always a pleasure. Lives is brought to you on KIOS Omaha Public Radio and is produced by Courtney Beerman. The music you hear playing in and playing out is performed by Andrew Bailey. Podcasts of today's show and others can be found at livesradioshow.com or where you get your podcasts. Subscribe today and please leave a review. 
I'm your host, Stuart Chittenden. Join me next week as we delve further into the practical and profound possibilities of living well. Thanks for listening. Thank you.